This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Spark My Muse. Today, I'm speaking with Keith Giles about his book, Jesus Unforsaken, Substituting Divine Wrath with Unrelenting Love, which is part of a series of books called The Unseries, and it includes Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment, Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming, Jesus Unveiled, Forsaking Church as We Know It for Ecclesia as God Intended, Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible, Jesus Untangled, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb, as well as plenty of other books along similar lines. Thank you so much for being a guest. I'm really excited to jump into this. Lisa, thank you so much. I'm I'm very, very blessed to be on the podcast and uh, yeah, very excited to talk about this topic. Your book, even though it's about atonement, which people might think, oh, theory of atonement book, maybe that's not for me, but I appreciate that you write this in an extremely accessible way. You actually cover seven different kinds of atonement theories, and I think many people will be surprised to realize that there's that many. They maybe have heard of one possibly influencing their life or possibly two or three, but what's really interesting is how each theory of atonement has a kind of origin story, a kind of cultural place and time and history that it came from. And you talk about on page 27, the gospel that Jesus preached is not about getting us into heaven after we die. It's about getting heaven into us before we die. Hmm. Before I jump in really into deeper things, I just wanted to ask you, as part of this unseries, did you feel that atonement was one of the top things that people misunderstand? Tell me a little bit about how the book came together. The Jesus on series is really all about, and as people could probably tell, hearing the titles that you were reading off, mm-hmm. it really is about sort of tackling what I kind of see as pillars uh, in the evangelical Christian faith theology that I think is largely misunderstood. A lot of it is built more on tradition than it is on what the scriptures actually teach. Mm-hmm. When you get down to it, I think a lot of it's about fear of manipulation. Mm-hmm things like that. So I wanted to kind of expose that, shine a light on that, and hopefully give people better theology and better ways of thinking about these things. And and by the way, things that are based on scripture, that are based mm-hmm. on church history. And definitely, you know, this idea of the gospel is such a fundamental thing, Lisa. And, mm-hmm. and for me, several years ago, probably like, I guess, 12, 15 something years ago, that question of what is the gospel was the kind of the big thing that really shifted my perspective on so many things. I did used to believe as a licensed and ordained minister of the gospel that the gospel was about saying a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. Mm-hmm. And I was a ordained minister preaching sermons, teaching and teaching that, believing that. And then when someone showed me that, well, actually, Jesus mm-hmm. never communicates the gospel that way. Mm-hmm. Jesus never says, hey, if you don't want to burn in hell forever, raise your hand. <laughs> let's do that again. Well, let's just repeat this prayer. Right. Uh, that prayer is not in the Bible. And, you know, so that was a big shock to me. And then finding out what the gospel really was. And in the book, as you said, I, I kind of start the book off explaining that because it's uh, the reason why it's so important is that uh, the atonement 
the penal substitutionary atonement theory, which is really the primary thing I'm wanting to, to dissect in this book, for so many Christians, it is the gospel. They believe that it is the gospel, that it was was handed to us by the apostles, mm. uh, by Jesus himself, and this is what the gospel is. And I, I want to demonstrate that it is not the gospel. The actual gospel that Jesus proclaims is this idea, you know, good news, which is the gospel, uh, the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is within you, that it's at hand, that it's close enough to touch, that mm. you can you know, live in this reality of the rule and reign of God in your life right now. You don't have to wait till you, uh, after you're dead. And that was the gospel as Jesus communicated. And I, and as I demonstrated in the book, it is also the gospel that Paul, the apostle, communicates. Mm. Multiple times, Paul preaches and teaches and affirms the gospel of the kingdom is what he preaches. Mm. And the reason why that's important is because a lot of Christians think the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians 15 which is kind of weird if you think about it. Why wouldn't the Gospels be found in those four books we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why wouldn't Jesus be the one to preach the Gospel? Well, I'm here to tell you that he is the one that tells us what the Gospel is. Those four books are called the Gospels because they contain the Gospel. Paul preached that same Gospel by his own admission. And so what happens in 1 Corinthians 15 um, is not a correction. It's not a new Gospel. It's not a different Gospel. Paul was very adamant, if anyone preaches a different gospel, have nothing to do with them. Mm. I I really felt it was important to clarify right off the bat Mm -hmm. what is the gospel and that the gospel is not an atonement theory. Mm -hmm. These are two separate discussions. To short answer (laughs) the question is, yes, I do think this question of the atonement is is a big, big question. But out of all the books I've written, I think this one was the one that felt the most complicated to address. Yeah, and I think also it helps us to realize that what we think of as the gospel in modern American evangelical mainstream conservative Christianity is also not what is being taught and preached all over the world necessarily or in all Christian traditions. Hmm. We sometimes take that for granted because we have such a narrow view of um, culture and, you know, we're in our bubble. Um, Yes. So one of the things you talk about that I really appreciated is you, you talk about how Jesus empties himself. And of course, this is right in the Bible. And um, that that is the incarnation is the sacrifice. And on page 69, you say the way many Christians evangelize begins with this idea. We tell unbelievers that their sinfulness separates them from God because he is holy and therefore they cannot survive in his presence and conversely that God cannot tolerate our offensive presence due to our sinfulness. The same notion of God's holiness is what drives our concepts of eternal torment. For those who deny Christ, God had no choice but to toss them into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels because of their sinfulness and his perfect holiness. They can never coexist together. But is this what the Bible says about God's holiness? Do scriptures affirm this notion that our sins prevent us from being in God's presence. Is God really too holy to look upon our sins? And I'll come to a question in a second, but I think that what you point out here is so powerful and so potent because or many times you hear in conservative Christian Protestantism that God's wrath has to be mediated by Jesus and God only sees Jesus's blood and it can't look at our unholiness and 
there's this huge theological impact an image of God problem that comes up when we start doing that because we don't think that God really loves us. He's just kind of like, okay, fine, Jesus, you can uh, pay the price for them. But, you know, I actually really don't like them at all because they're so simple. And maybe you could talk about this kind of the wrathfulness of God getting in the way of the gospel. And I sense that sometimes there's an effort to manipulate people into being afraid so that they can be the savior for people. And you, you do touch on that in the book. Maybe you can explain a little bit about what typical evangelism is like and where it kind of goes off the rails. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and I do think part of the problem is the is the evangelism piece because um, this is the way most of us have come into the faith, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember being nine years old and being in a church and hearing that invitation and having, having you know, explained to me that way. And so that's what I said yes to. Um, I didn't want to burn in hell forever. And mm-hmm. um, I wanted I wanted to be close to God. And they were telling me the only way that could happen would be if I had to, you know, follow these steps. Mm-hmm. But um, what I try to point out in the book is that um, so much of these assumptions that we have, first of all, they, uh, because this atonement theory of penal substitutionary atonement has been conflated with the gospel, this is how the gospel gets communicated. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, as, as I point out in the book, like throughout history, there were six or seven different atonement theories um, up until the 1500s. And, and it was then that John Calvin sort of formulated what we now call penal substitutionary atonement theory and called that the gospel. So, again, that's bizarre to think that the gospel waited for 1500 years um, to sort of be birthed by John Calvin, of all people. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. I want people to understand that so many of these things that, again, we assume are, well, this is just the scripture. This is just what the Bible teaches that, well, actually, what what you're believing and what you've been taught is something that John Calvin taught in the 1500s. So so specifically that idea, and I challenge this in the book, these are assumptions that we have just accepted. and And so I want to push back and say, especially if you're a student of the Bible, can you find a scripture that teaches specifically that God is too holy? To, uh, that we would be in his presence because he's just so holy and so perfect that, um, you know, we, God and I can never be uh, in the same room together because I would mm. just be consumed by his holiness because I'm a wretched worm and a sinner. I mean, again, that's the thing we've always been told. That's, that's what we've accepted. Mm-hmm. Go find a scripture that says exactly that. Well, uh, what I looked for it, I couldn't find it. And there, the, the closest you can find, you know, are some scriptures that's that seem to say that at the beginning like isaiah 59 it says but your iniquities have separated you from your god and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not listen to you but just keep reading i mean so if you just stop right there you'd say well there you go there's the Mm -hmm. verse keith but please keep reading because if you keep reading you'll see that it says later um you know like maybe 16 verses later it says the lord looked well wait it said hold on a minute you said that god couldn't see me Well, now here it says that the Lord looked and he saw, it says, he saw that there was no one. And so his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he says in verse 21 of that same chapter, my spirit who is on you will not depart from you. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a promise that God says, I'm never going to leave you. I won't turn away from you. Mm -hmm. And this happens several times. There's a, there's, um, there's another verse in Habakkuk, which is a very minor prophet in the Old Testament. 
in chapter one, where the prophet Habakkuk says, your eyes, God, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. But if we just keep reading that chapter a few verses later, uh, Habakkuk calls out and says, so God, why do you? And so it's actually sort of a complaint against God that God, I thought this is who you were. Mm. I thought you were a God who was too holy to look on evil, that you were a God who was too holy to tolerate wrongdoing. And yet that's not what I experienced. That's not what I see. God, you're not who I thought you were. Mm -hmm. That's the full message of, of that, of that chapter in Habakkuk. Mm -hmm. And really we don't have much else to support in scripture, this idea that God is too holy for us to be in his presence. And if anything, we should look to Jesus, right? Jesus is the is the best picture we could possibly have of who the Father is and what the Father is like. He only does what he sees the Father doing. Mm -hmm. And so he even says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So let's look at Jesus. Mm -hmm. When we look at Jesus, do we see Jesus being too holy to hang out with sinners? No. In fact, it's used as an insult against him by mm -hmm. the Pharisees. That, you know, he was a friend of sinners. He's hanging out with drunkards and prostitutes all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, the ironic thing about the, the Pharisees of all people being the ones to point that out is that, guess what? They believed God was too holy to be in the presence of sinners, which is the reason why they also behaved as if they were too holy. Mm. To You know, these people are unclean. We can't be around these sinners. We can't hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and drunkards. And, oh, my gosh, we can't do that. That's why they're scandalized that Jesus does it. Jesus gives us very specific, I mean, he attacks this notion head on and corrects this misunderstanding. He says, because God brings rain and, and shows favor and mercy on both the righteous and on the unrighteous equally, this is why you should love your enemy and bless those who curse you. And, you know, don't just love those who love you in return. What credit is that to you? Be like God. Mm. who loves everyone, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And then he ends that teaching by saying, be holy the way God is holy. And how is God holy? Well, he just corrected it. God is not so holy that he can't be in the presence of sinners. On the contrary, God is so holy that his holiness is expressed in his kindness and love and mercy to the unrighteous. Mm -hmm. And so that's why Jesus is a friend of sinners. That's why Jesus is seen spending more of his time with those quote unquote sinners than with the ones who believe they're the most righteous. Mm -hmm. So that's a very key thing for us to understand. God is not too holy for us to be in his presence. That is not God's disposition towards uh, us as his children. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's a very key thing I felt like I had to point out in the book. Right. You mentioned very succinctly, very well, God's wrath isn't the answer to our sin. God's forgiveness is the answer. And that is, you know, a lot different than Molech or Baal, <laughs> where we sometimes get, I think, our references, Zeus maybe, where we get our ideas about God from pagan gods, which behave more like us, than, than the one true living God that is ridiculously gracious and forgiving us all the time. You mentioned, too, the, instead of thinking about what Jesus did as how God changes his mind about us, it changes our mind about who God is. Hmm. I, there are just so many little points in there that really hit this home. And I've felt like I've deconstructed this to, to get to that point. Then when you say these things occasionally, I'm like, that's right. I have to believe that even more deeply. And, and um, 
live like I am loved. I think um, we do such such a crime to people to to tell them, well, Jesus loves some of you, or mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> God is you know usually angry most of the time, but then he sees all this blood <laughs> from yes. Jesus, and and he's finally his anger gets cooled down, and it's like what a monster! Like, right. should we worship some? crazy deity like that that would probably be a bad reflection on us yes yeah you know and that's you're exactly right i mean this is also again what i want people to just take a step back and you're almost like you know from the outside looking in listen to the way we describe who we think god is based mm-hmm. on this theology um and, and and it starts to sound like you said a whole lot more like this angry volcano god or molech or or mm-hmm. zeus or something where like well the god is angry well, what can we do to make the God happy? I don't know. Let's take something innocent, you know, maybe a, a child, a virgin, of course, mm-hmm. and um, let's beat it up and torture it and cut it and bleed it, and, you know, and make it really suffer a lot. And then, mm-hmm. then let's throw it in, you know, the volcano. Let's burn it up and set it on fire. And then, you know, oh, now the God will be happy again and the God mm-hmm. won't be angry at us anymore. And, and our crops will grow and, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the plague will pass, whatever. Like if, if we were to visit like some tribe in Papua New Guinea, or, you know, Africa or something or South America. And, and, and they would tell us this is the God they worship. We would be like, Oh man, that's so sad that you think that that God is like that. But, but evangelical Christians who embrace penal substitution, they have the exact same view of God. And it's so wrong. It's so primitive. It's such a primitive view of God. It looks nothing like Jesus. And, and I do really do stress in the book that, as you said, you know, this idea that it isn't, God's response to our sin isn't wrath, it's forgiveness. This is what we see when we look at Jesus, is that Jesus is constantly forgiving people. I mean, in fact, I don't even think you can find an example where anyone even asks him for forgiveness. He just automatically forgives them. Someone's walking up to him with, you know, a friend who's, who's you know, lame or can't walk, and he'll like, hey, your sins are forgiven. What do you, what do you want me to do for you? And he's just constantly forgiving sins, right? Um Always before the cross. This is the ironic thing. Jesus never forgives anyone after the cross, which is so mm. ironic. And yes, so this this idea is that God's response to sin is to forgive it. That is consistent, not just when we look at Jesus. It's also when um, we look at the writings of Paul, the other apostles, the book of Hebrews, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, which I have on a post-it note above my desk here, because I always want to be able to remember this. It's such a, it's such a key verse. Where Paul says, for God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us, mm-hmm. but reconciling the world to himself. And then he says, he has given us the ministry, this message of reconciliation, not a message of condemnation or torture or destruction, but a message of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is even the whole underlying you know, point of the new covenant that Jesus proclaims is that uh, God says that in this new covenant, he will know, he will remember our sins no more. So this is how God has dealt with the sins. Our sins is he's just forgiven them, which is exactly what you and I do, right? <laughs> when somebody <laughs> wrongs us, I don't say, well, uh, I'm going to need payment. You're going to have to do something now to pay me back. And and if I did demand some sort of a payment, guess what? That's not forgiveness. Mm. I haven't really forgiven you freely. I've been paid back. You owed me something and I got paid. That's not forgiveness. Mm. Um, but again, that's embedded in the penal substitutionary view of the of the atonement is that God's holiness has been insulted or, you know, in some ways offended. 
and by our sinfulness, and and he demands a payment. And Jesus is the payment. And Jesus' suffering and death on the cross is the payment that must be paid to God or to justice or whatever it happens to be. And then when that is satisfied, now God can love us and forgive us. Well, that's not forgiveness. He got paid. He was owed money or he was owed a debt and he got paid the debt. You don't you don't get to say you forgave the debt if you got the check in the mail. Mm. So all these things, they just don't fit with these ideas of what we really do see being proclaimed by Jesus and by the apostles and throughout early church history for about 1500 years that um, that this is what God had done. God had, through Christ, forgiven. He just freely forgave us. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we're supposed to freely forgive as well. Right. It's so interesting, too, because this idea of God's wrath and then therefore our righteous anger and wrath, um, it really plays out into the criminal justice system, into yeah. how we decide to punish people, even by death, which is just a strange projection, you know, thinking that God is full of anger and wrath at our transgressions. When you point out human wrath killed Jesus, Jesus was an innocent man that got murdered. Mm-hmm. God absorbs our revenge and our, and our hatred and our anger and our wrath, and then goes to the grave and then defeats it in, in resurrection. I think it's, so interesting we become who we worship when we worship and have an idea that god is is hateful wrathful then we just treat people that way and i guess people would might say okay well what was jesus doing on the cross what was the cross about then what is happening when jesus dies on the cross did it have to happen couldn't god have just forgiven and not had the sign of the cross and you explain this a bit in the book, but maybe you could give people a taste of what you were speaking about. Yeah, well, because it is such a key question, isn't it? You know, uh, mm-hmm. I get this all the time. Why did Jesus have to die? And quite often when people will ask me that question, uh, why did Jesus have to die? I'll, I'll just say, why do you have to die? Mm-hmm. Well, because I'm mortal, I'm human. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Because as you mentioned, Lisa, you know, in the book, I point out that um, and, you know, the, in the incarnation, I think we have to back it up. We, we have such a, a mm. tight focus on the cross and on the crucifixion. We have to pull back a little bit, pull the, pull the focus back a little bit. And let's start with the incarnation of Christ. Because in Philippians 2, we have this idea that, you know, Jesus was, um, you know, didn't consider one being one with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself, mm-hmm. um, took on the form of a huma- humanity, the form of a servant, um, and then humbled himself even to death. But see, What's happening in that moment is that Christ lets go of of immortality and puts on a body of flesh, which is now mortality. And in that very moment, his death was guaranteed. I mean, he's going to die now because he has taken on flesh, which can experience death. That in itself is the sacrifice that Jesus makes. I believe this is really what's being said in the book of Hebrews. When, when Jesus records Jesus saying to the Father, I've come to do your will, but at the same time mentions that sacrifice is not God's will. Mm. So whatever his will is, it's not about some kind of blood sacrifice ritual. Um, well, so what is it? Well, it's about him being willing to come to, to share with our humanity, to express for God to express solidarity with all of humanity. Mm-hmm. And then therefore, uh, because of that, it's not just 
well, these are the things that happened to specifically to Jesus in his body. What we see is that Paul all the time and the other New Testament authors will consistently talk about because Christ died, all died. Because Christ has been raised, all have been raised. Because Christ is sitting, sitting at the right hand of the Father, all are, we are also sitting at the right hand of the Father. In other words, what is true of Christ is now true of all of us. And that's a very key thing, first of all, to recognize. And so, number one, why did Jesus have to die? Well, because he took on humanity and took on mortality. So his death was guaranteed. Now, we say, well, why did he have to be crucified? Well, I would say, well, we decided that, you know, people, systems, the religious system, the political system of the day, but all, but specifically even humanity, again, our reaction to him was to reject him and turn on him and to put him to death, you know, in this, mm-hmm. in this horrific way. So he could have died in, in, in many different ways, but those political and religious systems decided the human, our human natures decided that the way he needed to die was crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So that was our choice. And as I point out in the book, there are multiple quotes where that's how his crucifixion is described, that he was murdered, that he was an innocent man who was put to death. Mm. The, that's the significance of the cross, that he was innocent, that he was God. And yet, what Jesus is showing us in that is that he's not, that God is not a God of wrath, right? He's constantly saying, I only do what I see the Father doing. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. And so, again, if we look at Jesus, we see a God who absorbs our hate, absorbs our violence, lets go of all power that he might have over us, and in fact says, you know what, I'm going to give you power over me. Do your worst. Mm. And even, even before we get started, he says, and by the way, I forgive you, right? Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Mm-hmm. And then they go ahead and do it. And he's, he forgives them automatically, instantly. Again, his response is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So what, what we did to Jesus was we crucified him, right? Mm-hmm. What God was doing was raising him from the dead. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we see again consistently in Scripture. We killed him. And what God did was raise him from the dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, the resurrection is sort of God's yes to the message of Christ, whereas mm-hmm. the crucifixion is our no, our mm-hmm. rejection to him and to his message. Yeah. And there's the whole piece, of, all those pieces of the Bible that talk about a living sacrifice. And Jesus is is now a living sacrifice. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be living sacrifices. Yes. It's, it isn't um, about, you know, the the scapegoating or the those things still happen innocent people are still killed yes when they go up against power and and corruption often it does end up very badly and i I think that you what you talk about um oh now i can't remember if it was plato or aristotle uh, maybe uh who said if there was ever an innocent man to to Mm -hmm. live on earth they would be killed it is really, um, to me, very salient point that we still do that. That's still our answer. What was lynching in the South? Mm-hmm. It was a crucifixion. It was a, it was an unjust answer to people being scapegoated, being blamed out of fear, out of hatred. There isn't an end to it. I mean, God provides a, an answer, but we don't like it sometimes. We, mm-hmm. we would prefer to mete out our revenge with violence, I think. Yes. 
Yeah, actually, absolutely. And then there's a, um, we were talking before the recording, if we were going to get to this or not, it's, I think yeah. we're kind of getting in this, this direction now, mm-hmm. um, which is great. Yeah. Cause the, um, when we get down to this question of like, what is it in humanity? Like, as you said, I mean, this, mm-hmm. what happened to Jesus, um, in the crucifixion had happened to many other people long before and it, it continues to happen to this day. And as you said, there are examples of that with lynching and things like that in the South. Mm-hmm. And um, so what is so what is it? And see, actually, this is the thing I find so fascinating that what part of what Jesus is doing on the cross is exposing. In fact, you know, Paul describes it this way that that on the cross, Jesus exposed. Right. He put on display the, the principalities and powers and the, the work, you know, the works of darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of what's happening. I mean, so. You know, again, we are now able to kind of look at ourselves and see, oh, my gosh, Mm. did we do that? I mean, he was innocent. There was nothing about him that would justify our reaction this way to Jesus. And yet, again, we as humanity, this is how we reacted. But why? Why did we behave this way? And um, I think one of the most fascinating sort of keys to understanding and unlocking this is um, a guy named Rene Girard. came up on this theory of what he calls mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry and how mimetic desire leads us to uh, conflict and war and, and to scapegoat other, other people. And it's a very complicated thing. I, I, I have an entire chapter in the book on this, but, but to simply just explain it, I guess, in the, in the simplest terms, uh, and maybe terms that the, our Christian audience can definitely you know, draw, draw some lines to connect some dots to, you know, Gerard points out about how this mimetic desire is, is really exposed in the 10 commandments that um, the 10 commandments are actually affirming that this is exactly right. That part of humanity's biggest problem stems from our desiring. This is what mimetic desire means. Desiring things that other people desire. Mm. In other words, our desires are not our own. We desire what other people around us desire. So um, it's a collective kind of a thing. And so the Ten Commandments addresses this problem. The Ten Commandments shine a light on the fact that, um, you know, we desire our neighbor's wife. We desire, we, we want to commit adultery. We desire, we want to steal something. What is stealing? Well, you have it. It's yours, but I want it. So I take it. That mm-hmm. comes from mimetic desire. Um, even do not kill, I mean, is, is still addressing because this mimetic desire, I want something, you got it, there's a struggle, um, or even I might decide to kill you so I can take something that belongs to you. Mm-hmm. You know, we see it happening even, for example, that happens with King David, right? He mm-hmm. sees Bathsheba, he desires her, he kills her husband, and he takes her. Mm-hmm. All these things are examples of mimetic desire. So the Ten Commandments affirm that Rene Girard is correct, that there is a, there is a, there is a deep embedded thing in humanity that is expressed this way and it's and it, for many of us it's unconscious we're not even aware of it that we're doing it mm-hmm. and um and so but anyway it's there and the, but the problem with the ten commandments is that it only says hey everyone this is your problem stop doing it mm-hmm. but the problem is we can't stop doing it because this is embedded in our dna this is who we are at our core we cannot stop mimicking the desires of other people Um, so it's good to know that yes this is a struggle but it's not helpful because it just says don't do it it doesn't say how how we can 
prevent doing it. And here's one of the beautiful things that Jesus does. And in fact, this I think is one of the ways that Jesus, quote unquote, saves us from our sin. Because if our sin is expressed in this um, being slaves to this mimetic desire that, that is within all of us, that Jesus saves us from that sin by doing something that the law could not do. Because Jesus says, follow me. In other words, mimic me. Mm-hmm. And in other words, Jesus doesn't say, stop desiring other pe- what other people desire. Stop mimicking the desires of other people because he knows we can't stop. He instead says, mimic me and my desires. Why? Because what Jesus only desires is to do the will of the Father. Mm-hmm. And so if now, if we sort of redirect our mimetic desire towards Jesus, if we, if we pay attention to, well, what are the things that Jesus desires? What are the things that Jesus does? Let's, let's emulate him. Let's mimic the, the actions and the heart and the attitude of Jesus. This is the only possible way for us to shift from desiring what other people around us have and wanting to take it away from them. We instead become people who love our neighbors and we, we now are looking for what they lack. You know, they don't have food. They don't have shelter. They don't have water. They don't have clothing. Out of love now, I'm going to go and meet their need. It's a reversal of that mimetic desire. I don't want to take something from them. I want to bless them. I want to give something to them in love. And it's only by mimicking Jesus in this way, um, because what he desires is to do the will of the Father, we, we now have a way, a path, a method, and a mechanism to reverse this mimetic desire and to really experience a transformation. And I love that. I think that is so powerful and so key. And um, I go into much more detail in the book. There's so much more, so many more layers to this, uh, to this topic. But I think that is a very key thing for us to understand. Mm-hmm. Right. It's interesting to kind of deconstruct what's happening with sin in terms of desiring what others desire and you once you realize that's what's going on you can see it everywhere even in even in sort of neutral things like testimonials for products or something yes. that they're they're leveraging mimetic desire that it sort of comes up from us like instinct and and then of course you have you know something like social media that's completely <laughs> the selfies and it is and the memes are mimetic means are mimetic so it's it's just so fascinating that we we sort of function this way sort of absent-mindedly and blindly and jesus doesn't even expect us to figure that out he's he just says okay follow me and keep your eyes on me and you know imitate me and i using what we're already gonna do but but this time for good and um, that is another really gracious way to be with us, you know, instead of mm. holding it against us, that faith in his faithfulness is counted as righteousness. And so it, it really is a beautiful way to kind of get behind what we're doing when we sin, which I think is if we don't know what we're doing, we're just going to keep doing it, you know, unconsciously. That's right. Um, there's this part you mentioned about, um, I'm going, I'm going back a little bit here talking about God not wanting to look at sin and Jesus is on the cross. And some people have uh, commonly people have said, God couldn't look at Jesus because all that sin, all our sin was on him. And the father couldn't look at the son and, and they were separated. Trinity was separated for the first time ever. And Jesus even says, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you bring this up and you talk about, and Jesus is always quoting from scripture, quoting mm -hmm. the prophets over and over and over. And a lot of times we're missing that being Gentiles in the modern era and not really knowing our Torah, right? We, we don't know what he's referring to. And we don't know a lot of times that that is Psalm 22. Uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about why is Jesus saying that he's forsaken? And is it just uh, his feeling at the time and, and having solidarity with us? Or um, is it because the Trinity is separated from each other? Yeah. And so thank you for bringing this up because this is really one of my pet peeves. Um, uh, and, and this, again, is one of those things where like, you know, I, you can sit in and grow like I grew up like nine years old from the age of nine years old. I was grew up in the church and like I said, became licensed and ordained. And I, I preached this. I talked about this. Um, and, and again, it's just something that gets repeated over and over again that on the cross, especially on Good Friday or Easter weekend. Right. Um, this will absolutely I promise you, you've heard this over and over again from the pulpit, this idea that on the cross, um, for the first time ever, the Trinity was separated and the father turned his face away. And like, and, and we believe that we repeat mm -hmm. that and say that. And we think that that's true. And I want to, again, I want to challenge people. If you're a student of the Bible, go and find me a verse that specifically says that on the cross, the father turned his face away from Jesus. And for the first time ever in eternity, the, the son and the father were separated from one another because of the sins of the world that were laid upon Jesus. Like that doesn't happen. It doesn't appear. There is absolutely nothing in the scriptures to suggest this, yet we believe it and we repeat it. And so, like you said, um, what Jesus, the only clue that we have that, that kind of creates this whole story we've invented, um, it just starts with the, the place of, from the cross where Jesus, quoting Psalms 22, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And um, again, under, we have to understand in Jewish culture, this was a song, you know, it would be, it would be like if, uh, if you and I were t sitting around the table with some other people and I just suddenly said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, you know what I'm saying, you know, oh, you, and in your mind, you know, the rest of the song, you know, all the other verses, right? Or at least most of first, second and last, right? We know most of those verses. Um, so again, the Jews would have understood, oh, he's quoting Psalms 22 and he doesn't sing the entire song but he doesn't have to. And we go and look at Psalms 22. What we see is it is such a messianic prophetic psalm. You know, verse one is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But verse 16 is they pierced my hands and my feet. Oh my gosh. Verse 18 is they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Oh my gosh. So Jesus is basically saying, Hey everyone, go look at Psalms 22 because what's happening to me right now was, was predicted and, and prophesied uh, in Psalms 22. Now, but, but don't just stop there. I mean, th those are two pretty big things, right? That, wow, that, that coincides perfectly with what's happening on the cross. But if you keep on reading, you'll come to verse 24 of Psalms 22, and it says this, For God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So the opposite. I know. If anything, Psalms 22 proves that the father would absolutely not turn his face away from mm. Jesus. He did not turn his face away from Jesus on the cross. And so why is this important? Because listen, if the father would not forsake Jesus when all of the sins of the world were laid upon him, guess what? God will not turn his face away from you. 
you don't have enough sin in you to make God reject you. If Jesus had all the sins who have ever, you know, of all, all humanity for all time upon him, and if that's not enough to make the Father turn away from his Son, Jesus, mm-hmm. you and your sins are not enough to make the Father turn his face away from you. He will not forsake you. In fact, he emphatically has already said this, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Mm-hmm. This is his spoken promise to us. So I, I get really upset that we so easily accept things that are not in the scripture and then we we gloss over things that are in the scripture mm-hmm. that contradict that, yeah. these ideas. Yeah, I, I loved reading that because I... I hadn't put it all together. I figured something seems off, you know, <laughs> really not okay. But but that really makes it obvious. And and also when when Jesus is talking about the gospel, he's also quoting Isaiah and mm-hmm. and he's saying a different kind of gospel than your sin means you deserve to die. You know, he's saying I'm going to set the captives free. He's going to yes. break into hell and break everybody out of there it's i'm not going to send you to hell i'm going to get you out (laughs) and so it's interesting that we in so many instances have reversed have reversed what jesus was trying to say Mm -hmm. you point out the wages of sin is death first which is you know i'm thinking about how we get evangelized and how people you know let's take them down the romans road you know right and it's a, a different kinds of manipulations you you say about sin consequences end in death you know spiritual death physical death and all that but it's not a a way of saying we deserve to die because jesus has or i'm sorry god has forgiven us and jesus has taken the brunt of all of our sin and shame and violence some of those verses that are i guess you know, used as tools to get people in a certain place of feeling terrible about themselves, being so scared of hell, and even scared of just social uh, shunning or shame, will be like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm just a piece of crap. I I don't have anything going for me. I I just hope God doesn't want to send me to hell. And it's so interesting that Jesus is all about giving us life and peace and assurance and, of course, being gracious. But we are misunderstanding sometimes how huge that grace is and just how loving we ought to be in, in imitation of that. The other really cool thing I hope you can speak to is you talk so beautifully about what is the glory of God, answering this question, what is the glory of God and being perfect as God is perfect. And I, I loved how you brought this out because it is is extremely nourishing for the soul it's like food for the soul you talk about we are the glory of god and and i was thinking as i read this god doesn't have a body and god makes a home and in, in our in our temple in our mm-hmm. bodies and that is how the glory of god becomes manifest it's just really neat how you speak to this maybe you could just unpack it a little bit Sin is missing the mark, right? And um, and this, you know, Romans three twenty three, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and I think again, we've all, I've always at least been told and taught that what that verse means, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, is that we've fallen short of perfection. Mm-hmm. We because you know we cannot be, um, excuse me, we cannot be perfectly holy. 
uh, the way God is perfectly holy, that's what it means that we've missed the mark. Well, um, I, I disagree there because what it says is that we've fallen short of the glory of God, not perfection. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there, there's some verses that we go and look at, like Exodus 33, for example, um, where Moses says to God, show me your glory. Mm-hmm. And so God says, OK, I'm going to show you my glory. But he says, I will make I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious mm-hmm. and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And so wait a second. What is the glory of God? Well, God says in Exodus to Moses, you want to see my glory? Well, I'm going to show you my goodness. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show you my graciousness. I'm going to show you my compassion. Mm-hmm. Wait a second. Wow. Okay. If that's the glory of God, then this is what we have fallen short of. That's all it's saying in Romans. Mm-hmm. That we have all sinned, but we've done so by falling short of being loving and kind and gracious. Mm-hmm. Right? This is this is the calling. It's not like, oh, something impossible for me to do. Mm-hmm. It's just that uh, I've, I've forgotten that this is what I'm supposed to be like. I'm supposed to love God and love others, right? This is how Jesus, you know, summarized the entire law. Mm-hmm. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that really very simply is all it's really, all it's really saying. And, um, and then recognizing that really, to, as from God's perspective, we are the glory of God, right? Mm-hmm. It's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, again, like you were saying, uh, God doesn't have a physical body. Like, if you, if, if Christ is doing anything in the world, mm-hmm. uh, it'll be because we're doing it because it's Christ in us. Mm-hmm. Um, we are his hands. We are his feet. Christ has no body now, but yours and mine. Mm-hmm. And so we are now the incarnation of Christ in the world. There's more of Christ in the world now than there was 2000 years ago mm-hmm. because it's Christ in you and me and hundreds of thousands of other people, millions of people around the planet. And so this is, a, again, it's a shift of our understanding, but I think it's so critical for us to get. God is not looking at us and, and he's not disappointed in us that we fail to be something that we could never be, which is perfect and sinless. That's not the expectation. His expectation is that, again, we would reflect the glory of God because why? We're made in the image of God. We are the children of God. And what do we know about God? God is love. Mm-hmm. And so um, in First John, it says even that God is love, but all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. That's mm-hmm. what it's about. That's what he's pointing us to. Mm-hmm. It's simply about abiding in Christ, as Jesus said. And if we abide in Christ, he abides in us. Mm-hmm. And if we do that, he also says that he, that he and the Father will come and make their home in us. Mm-hmm. And so it's Christ in us that is the hope of the glory of God mm-hmm. in us and in the world. And again, this is such a beautiful picture because it's a picture of reconciliation. It's a picture of wholeness. It's a picture of transformation. We are now embodying and we are bringing the kingdom of God in our own life, in our own communities, and this is the plan. This is that little pinch of yeast that eventually covers the entire lump of dough. Mm. It seems tiny. It seems insignificant. But let me tell you, it is inevitable mm. that this love of Christ and this kingdom of God will, one person at a time, one heart at a time, mm-hmm. transform us and transform the world from the inside out. Mm. When I was reading that portion in your book, it brought me to 
realize that there's another often misconstrued verse about if you don't forgive others, your father in heaven will forgive you. Mm -hmm. And often I've, I've heard that used as like, you know, be careful. You're going to get it wrong with God because you're going to forget to forgive or you're going to intentionally not forgive. And then, you know, you're doomed because God can't <laughs> forgive you. Right. And now understanding that verse through the lens of what you just said and what I was reading, it is a rejection of God's love when we don't forgive. We are not, we are falling short of the glory right there. And mm -hmm. what God would do for us, we are not extending to anybody else. So it's, and there's a parable about that with the, the man who owes Mm -hmm. you know, a great deal of money to the king and then someone owes him a tiny amount and he has them thrown in jail. And it's like, that would be us not forgiving. It would be us thinking, in a sense, getting God all the way wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you could see a parallel or if you could elucidate that a little bit better. That place where Jesus points that out, you know, that if, if you don't forgive others, your sins will not be forgiven. Again, it's just him wanting to for us to get to understand this reciprocal nature of the love of God. Going back to the idea of, you know, where Jesus says, you know, we should love God and love others. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought of that text as a one-way street. Okay, I'm sitting here in my chair and I'm going to love God sort of like, you know, vertically. I'm going to I'm going to look up at the ceiling and I'm going to be loving God. Mm -hmm. And then and then people around horizontally in my world around me um, I'm going to be loving them. If that's all it is, uh, I, by the way, I think that's an incomplete understanding of what Jesus is saying. Because if that's the way we think of it, and that is the way I used to think of it, I'm sitting here and I'm loving God. I'm pushing love up to the ceiling or to the sky towards God. And then I'm loving my neighbors myself. So I'm pushing love out to other people. That's incomplete. If I don't receive love from God, and it says in First John that love uh, begins with him, you know, because he first loved us. Love is from God because God is love. And so we have to see it as a complete circle, a complete cycle. I first have to learn how to be someone who understands how to receive God's love. That's not easy, right? Uh, I need to put myself in a place where I'm receiving the love of God first. Now I'm filled with this love of God and now I can love other people. But it isn't, again, just a one-way street. I have to learn how to receive love from you and from other people around me. Because if you are trying to obey Jesus and you're trying to love me, but I'm I'm holding you at uh, arm's length, I'm not receiving your love, well, then I'm breaking the cycle. I'm not allowing it to everything to flow the way it should. And that's the way it works with love. We have, we have to learn to receive love from God so that we can love God and receive love from God so we can love others and receive love from others so that we can continue this cycle of love. And it works with forgiveness as well. And so if I've been forgiven um, or I want to receive forgiveness and enjoy the, the blessing of forgiveness, I've got to be willing to let that cycle continue. I'm going to also then forgive you and receive forgiveness from you as well. And so it's more to me about getting a clearer picture of how these things are connected. Mm. Jesus is really clear about this. Um, and in this, especially when he's doing the whole thing about the teaching us how to pray mm. You know, he's, he's teaching us to pray, not my father in heaven, but our father in heaven. Mm. I don't pray for my daily bread. I pray for our daily bread. It's a prayer of community. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a, an acknowledgement and it's a reminder to me that 
God isn't just my God. He's not just my father. He's yours and everyone's. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not just my needs, my daily needs I'm concerned about. It's yours. How are you? Do you have enough to eat? Well, let me share some of what I have with you. Mm -hmm. And it's really important for us to get this. It's no surprise that in that context of Jesus teaching us to pray this community-minded prayer of our Father, our, our sins being forgiven, our needs being met, our daily bread being provided, to stop and say, by the way, if you're not going to forgive other people, you're not going to be forgiven. He's, he's putting a point on that. Do you see? If you're not completing the circuit, if you're not completing the cycle, if you're not allowing this to flow in all these directions, something is broken here and it needs to be repaired. I think that's really all he's trying to tell us. Right. And love is something that you don't watch, witness, you participate in it. And forgiveness is something you don't deal out once in a while. If you feel like (laughs) it, it's something you participate in that that is coming towards you and then can can move out from you. And I think that that is obviously a more holistic way to, to look at it, but that's also how life works. Like we can tell that when we forgive others, we are also relieved of holding a grudge. It's not life giving to not forgive. It's death dealing, right? And so we can't partake in a living God when we're death dealing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really helpful to understand that verse a little better because I have seen that verse used as like a barrier verse, like, Mm -hmm. okay, don't take communion. If you haven't forgiven anyone, you're going to be condemned. And it's all these distancing (laughs) things where you think there's a lot of rules here. And then at some point you might realize, wait, maybe people put those rules there because uh-huh. God seems to be pulling all the rules away and saying, come on in, time to party, let's do this yes. and let's commune together. I, it's this repeated human desire to make God worse than God is or mm-hmm. make God not loving. When you see how rampant it is and how important it is for people to say, well, you know, if you don't repent, you're not forgiven. It, Jesus forgave you, but you have you have to do something. You have to be sorry for your sins and you have to be contrite. And how do you see that playing out in terms of, I don't want to say it's always straight up manipulation, but there's such a tendency for us to paint Jesus in a different picture than how Jesus reveals himself. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, well, that's exactly right. Um that's 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 what concerns me is that i feel like in the church because of these theologies because of these doctrines we turn this welcome mat into these barriers right these hoops to jump through um rather than it being a declaration that hey um god was in christ not counting your sins against you but he's reconciled you and the whole world to himself like that's what it says in second Corinthians five nineteen, and then you know you've now been given this ministry and this message of reconciliation as well Um, that should be our message. And um, instead, yeah, it becomes sort of these, well, we we put the carrot at the end of the stick and we say, oh, do you want forgiveness? Well, you're going to have to do these things and come back next week and do it again. It's really a reversal of what we see in scripture. Like when we see in in the gospels that, you know, John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want to say, well, did he or not? The proclamation should be, guess what? Yes, he did. He has taken away the sins of the world. If our message could shift from you're a sinner and you're separated from God and and um, you know, you're destined for destruction and torture and hell and eternal torment unless you do these other things. Again, this sort of shotgun wedding um, <laughs> way of describing 
you know, why you should love <laughs> Jesus and follow Jesus. I mean, uh, I would direct people back to the, you know, the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. When we see the apostle Paul standing in the midst of these pagans, these idol worshipers in Athens, his message to them is beautiful. It's exactly what I'm talking about. What he says to these idol worshiping pagans is, Hey, I want you to know God is your father and you are his children. And in fact, God loves you and he's, he's been blessing you and showing you favor in hopes that you would turn to him and know him better. And in fact, this same God is the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. Mm. That is such a beautiful message. I mean, what a beautiful invitation. There's no threat there. There's no, you're not forgiven. There's no, you're condemned. There's no, you're going to burn in hell for eternity. There's an affirmation to unbelievers. God is your father. You are his children. He loves you. He blesses you. He wants you to turn and know him. And by the way, even if you don't believe in him, he's the one in whom you live and move and have your being. He's all around. You can't get away from him. And you're loved. You're accepted. You're forgiven. That is such a powerful message. It's more powerful than we think it is. Mm. We proclaim to people what Jesus proclaimed to people. Your sins are forgiven. They suddenly begin to behave as if it's true. They go, whoa, (laughs) I'm forgiven. Well, look at that, right? Mm. And when we get it, our response to this, again, what does it say? The kindness of God is what leads to repentance. Mm. When When we experience firsthand the love of God, the kindness of God, his forgiveness, um, his fatherhood, then our, our reaction is to say, wow, well, I, I want to please this God. I want to know this God better. What, is, what would it take for me to, to draw near to this God? I'm curious. I'm interested. Right? We're, we are wooed into sort of the loving presence of God. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, go read the book of Acts. There's like nine different sermons that mm-hmm. are preached, evangelistic sermons preached in the book of Acts. None of them contain mm-hmm. sort of the shotgun wedding approach, the threat of hell and destruction. Mm-hmm. They're invitations to know and follow a God who loves them, to enter a kingdom where we get to uh, know the presence of a God who is who loves us and who cares for us uh, and who will never leave us or forsake us. Mm. That's, that's what we see. And I, I wish the church would kind of return to that idea. First of all, understanding that that is the message and um, to shift the way we communicate that message. Mm, that's beautifully said. I think it's really neat, too, that Paul acknowledges that God is already at work in the culture and that God is the father of everyone, not just the Jews, right? So he can go to Athens and he can say, here's God at work already. And Mm -hmm. you don't know the full picture, but there's something here. I think that's also kind of gone against the missionary impulse sometimes of going to different cultures and and being like, everything here has to go. (laughs) You know, you have to, you have to look as white bread American as possible. And then you've found the gospel, but it's like, well, God's been at work in this culture. I guess I just appreciate that God doesn't need a ton of (laughs) handholding. Right. (laughs) God is actually at work and in and through us. As Paul says, it's a so beautifully, it's a, like an ontological mistake we make that we're separated from God. Like that could possibly happen as if God is not the ground of being itself. Mm-hmm. I would love it for people to fall in love with the living God. Um, do you have any last things you'd like to say? 
I'm really grateful for the opportunity, Lisa, to have this conversation. And um, I would just encourage anyone listening, mm-hmm. if what we're, what we're talking about, it either resonates with you and you're just going, amen, and you're jumping up and down in your living room or wherever you are, <laughs> and you're like, yes, this is beautiful. That's great. Um, but some of you might be listening and you're like, I don't know, this doesn't seem right. What about these other scriptures, you know? Mm-hmm. And like in Isaiah, it says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. What about in the Hebrews where it says, you know, mm-hmm. without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And, mm-hmm. and you, maybe all these verses are popping into your mind from Sunday school. I address each and every one of those verses mm-hmm. in my book. Um, I walk through it very methodically, but also as, as accessibly as I can, very conversationally. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just encourage you to read the book. Even if you don't come away with the same conclusions that, that I reach in the book, I think you will at least benefit from, number one, understanding what the gospel is and what it isn't, what penal substitutionary atonement theory is and where it came from. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll have a better perspective of at least another way to look at the cross, uh, another way to think about these questions of sin and salvation and redemption and uh, discipleship and things like that. I promise you there's going to be plenty in the book to encourage you to uh, inform you and educate you, you'll find it to be uh, edifying and, and find it to be a blessing again, even if you don't agree with the conclusion. I totally agree for anybody listening to this. This was a wonderful book to read. Got me excited to read the other books. And uh, I'm just so glad that it's out there. Maybe you can tell us where we can find you online or find your other books. And also you podcast too. So tell us about that. I blog over on Patheos. You can find it just by typing in my name, keithgiles.com, K-E-I-T-H-G-I-L-E-S.com. And um, it'll take you straight to my blog. Yeah, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. And you can, uh, I'm very responsive to people there uh, if you want to talk or have a question or something. And um, yes, I do I do a couple of podcasts. So I'm a co-host of a podcast called The Heretic Happy Hour. I've done it for a couple of years now. It's really a podcast where we have a lot of fun the hosts don't agree on everything, but we model every episode. We get to model what it looks like for Christians to um, to disagree on things and yet love each other and respect each other. And we don't yell, we don't get angry, we don't insult each other. Mm-hmm. So that's a rare thing in itself, and um, that's a lot of fun. And then I also just started a brand new podcast called Peace Catalyst Podcast. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful opportunity to have conversations with people, both Christians and Muslims, and people of other faiths, mm-hmm. to talk about the whole idea of making peace in our world and how we go about that, what we can learn, what we have to learn from other people as well. So those are the different things I'm involved with uh, that people should know about. And I'll just real quickly say one other thing that, I, that I've been doing, people listening might be interested in. What we're talking about here kind of does touch on this idea of deconstructing our faith and our theology. And um, for many years, I've been talking to people who are deconstructing So I started this thing about two years ago called Square One, and this is a 90-day course, and it's a community of people where we walk through the whole deconstruction process together over a 90-day period. We just take it one week at a time, one sort of issue and topic at a time. There's a weekly Zoom call where we get together online and sort of check in with each other. How are we doing with this? How are we processing these things? It's not about directing you to deconstruct or reconstruct your faith in a certain way. It's more about laying out options before you to let you sort of decide for yourself what works for you and what doesn't and to kind of chart your own course towards reconstruction. Mm. 
of faith. And so I've been doing that, like I said, for two years. It's been so wonderful to see so many people go through this course mm-hmm. um, and really get set free from a lot of toxic theology, mm-hmm. connect with other people who are going through the same kind of things they're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, our next round is going to be is going to begin in August, August the 9th. Mm-hmm. We have about 10 more seats available. And Lisa, I'll send you a link for your listeners if they want to register. Uh, I'm offering like a 75% discount on that. Wow. Uh, right great. now. So, and by the way, too, even if that's a huge discount, but if you say, if you look at that and you say, well, you know, this looks great. This looks like this is would be perfect for me, but I really can't even afford the 75% discount. I always offer five or six seats every session for free, mm-hmm. uh, sponsored seats for people that can't afford it. Cause I, if people need this mm-hmm. and this is something that would really help them, I don't want the cost to be a barrier to them. So mm-hmm. contact me as well. If you're curious about one of one of those sponsored seats that are available, because I, I don't want anyone to miss this opportunity if this is something that uh, they feel like would be a benefit to them. Yeah, I'd like to underscore that, too, for listeners. A lot of times we begin deconstructing, not because um, someone told us God is more loving than we thought. Usually we come up against some kind of distorted image of God that's upsetting and it reminds us of like a bad parent or a mm-hmm. nasty teacher and yeah. and who is god really so a time of deconstruction is really a way to just reflect on what you've been taught and what you believe about god and then see also are there any cultural influences that i have been taught certain things or have any voices been left out and i think what is so interesting about, and some people just hear the word deconstruction, they get worried. But I think we're always deconstructing if we're growing. There's always a a kind of reflection, honing in, and then moving on. And then we outgrow the pot we're planted in, and then we get repotted Mm. again and again. And this is part of metanoia, I believe, or turning back to God. We're doing it over and over and over. And so deconstruction is just the uncomfortable parts of growth, I think. And I think it's good for people to not worry like, oh no, I'm going to lose my faith. Because usually what happens is if you're shepherded, if you're supported in a group, like what Keith is offering, you find yourself so richly connected to others and God more and valuing the scripture more differently usually, but more so because it finally doesn't seem compromised and distorted against love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. 